everybody to another edition, episode 43 of Running Into the Fog with the Johnson Brothers. Eric, how are you doing today? Doing fine, Derek. Good to see you. We're back from a week off and uh, boy, am I ready. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed our week off. It's uh, moving. I've admitted before and I'll admit it again that this uh, weekly tempo is taxing at least the younger uh, brother, the younger uh, Johnson. I don't know how it's doing for the elder uh, one, but uh, still yeah, a lot of fun. I'm, retired. I'm retired. I'm enjoying every minute of it. This, <laughs> this is just well, maybe I'm in charge of too much of the guest outreach then we can, uh, I'll be happy to share that with you. The um, guest that we have today is a longtime friend of ours. I'm not going to say old friend because she's not old and uh, she just happens to be a longtime friend of ours. Uh, Judy Levitt, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Derek. Eric, good to see you both. It's been a while. Great to see you too. It has been a while. And when we were thinking about having you on the podcast, Judy, you know, obviously we can cover a number of different angles. You know, you've got a long background in corporate libraries, uh, academic libraries, knowledge management, competitive intelligence, strategy. I mean, the the list of areas of both uh, for-profit and not-for-profit types of environments that you've touched in your career uh, of more than 38, 40 years, right? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We don't want to be too vocal about that, but um, just for our guests, they're they're really having a, quite a privilege here today to hear from somebody that's got the amount of experience that you do in, I'm going to call it in our game. Uh, and when I say in our game, I mean the game of market insights, competitive intelligence. And it's not every day that we get, uh, on this podcast anyway, that we get people who are coming into uh, this space and um, with as much direct experience in in our game as as you have. And I obviously acknowledge that you've been out of uh, that game now for six, seven years, retired seven years. from mm-hmm. Rockwell Collins in 2015, if I have that right? Yes, seven years. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I guess we just look forward to the next 56 or seven minutes together and kind of jamming on uh, what you did in your career and what you've been doing, um, even more importantly, since that uh, part of your time on earth uh, ended and uh, what's what's next for Judy. So Eric, do you have any opening questions? Before we jump into that, I got to show something here quick because Judy wrote a book uh, during the pandemic and we're going to be giving away one of those books during a raffle at the end of our hour together. Um, For those of you returning visitors, uh, you will recognize that we have a little process here where we uh, put some uh, tokens up uh, called POAPs, Proof of Attendance Protocol uh, Web3 Crypto Tokens, and you can scan that QR code to redeem the unthinkable token. Now, for those of you who uh, stay for the second half of the hour, unspeakable, uh, and if you become an interlocutor, you'll earn tokens for that as well, Uh, but those would be the tokens that are eligible to join the raffle that you see on the screen, which starts in 46 minutes. Uh, we're going to let that raffle run the last 10 minutes of our hour together. Uh, and whoever's token is uh, the winner there will uh, receive a copy of Talking Tea, Casual Tea Drinker to Tea Connoisseur by Judith A. Levitt. Uh, so that's my only uh, remark as we get going. Scan that QR code. And uh, Judy, tell us, tell us what uh, the impetus was behind the book. I know you said you wrote it during the pandemic. It'd be really, really interesting to hear how that whole thing got started. Okay, well, it's kind of a long story. My, my love of tea actually started when I was about 10 years old. So um, we're talking about age. That's almost 65 years ago. So 
Uh, my love of tea, I, I'll just uh, sh show you here. This is where my love of tea started with this little blue teapot that belonged to my mom. It was a gift to her, um, a shower gift in 1945 from her best friend Maxine or Mac as she called her. And I, this, in the first chapter of my book, I talk about how I got to my love of tea. And that was because when I was 10 years old, I was raised on a farm in Southeastern Iowa. And one cold winter a Sunday afternoon after lunch and after church, my mom kicked us five kids outside. I'm sure she was tired. I just needed a nap. So this was January. It was cold. We were bundled up. We ran around the farm for a while and came back in late afternoon and took all of our um, coats and mittens and boots and gloves off and everything. And then she made just a soft boiled egg and toast dinner for us, simple dinner. And then she put her little tea ball in the hall teapot and made tea, which I'd never had before. I loved it. I just loved it. And um, I drank tea through high school and college and when I lived in France. And um, I've only had tasted two cups of coffee in my entire life. Wow. Time was 1976. I don't plan to either. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> just the, the well, older I got, the more I, I really liked tea. And um, in the early 90s, I started really becoming interested in tea as the industry and as a beverage and making it maybe at some point a career. And so I started going to tea conferences in Las Vegas, the World Tea Expo. It was called Take Me to Tea at that time. Um, collecting and reading books on tea. And then now I have about 350 books I've collected on tea. Um, and I had always had this kind of plan in mind for years and years and years, even while I was working in corporate America. And um, so the retirement and COVID kind of allowed me to finally come to that point where I could make that a reality. So I had been reading these tea books for years and years. And I thought, well, I really want to be able to tell other people about tea. So how many kinds are there? You know, I didn't know started reading through all my books and kind of kept distilling down. Well, it looks like there are six kinds, you know, white, yellow, green, oolong, black, and pu'er. Okay, I know there's six types. How many kinds are there, the six types? And that's when I came up with my periodic table. These 48 teas were mentioned the most frequently in those 300 books that I read under those types of tea. So my daughter-in-law helped me get this into a really nice diagram, very usable diagram. And then I got a copyright on that in 2019. So that was setting me up then to, to go into business. And then 2020, I was just ready to start going out and doing tea presentations and tea tastings and then COVID hit. So I thought, well, I'm stuck here at home, can't go anywhere. Nobody's coming in, what can I do? I think I'll write a book around my chart. So tell my personal stories about tea, um, and then also talk about these 48 teas, um, descriptions, deep descriptions of every one of them. How do you make good tea? Where is tea grown in the world? How do you um, find good tea? Where do you find it? So it's kind of a, an introduction for people who really would like to learn more about tea, but maybe are just novices or, or um, beginners. That's a really interesting kind of setting of the table, the tea table, so to speak. Judy, and I noticed over your left shoulder, you have a quite a stack of books. Yeah. That's what's okay. going on? What's, what's a, going on? Are those, is that your research, uh, or at least a portion of your research library going on there? Or what, what? That's a small stack. I've got a, you know, a bookshelf behind me, and then I've got some other things on the floor, all my tea books. I, I need another bookshelf. But a friend recently gave me this t-shirt, which fits me perfectly. It says, 
one does not stop buying books just because there's no more shelf space. No. <laughs> That's right. That's a good one. So the ones that are kind of behind me, I, I, every once in a while I'm teaching a course or something new comes up, but I want to learn about just Chinese teas or just Chinese green teas or just uh, certain kinds of Japanese green teas. So then I have to go back to all my books and kind of scan through them again and pick up information. So I'm getting ready to put together like a class just on oolong teas. So back to the books and doing the research. Pardon the pun, but you need a t-shirt so I can wear it on the next broadcast here uh, with, with your book cover on it. Yeah, I um, think I this is what I should put on the t-shirt. I thought about that. Yeah. That's exactly perfect. I'd pay 30 bucks for something like that. You oh, got okay. it. Well, I have extended it to my, my brand to a teacup. There you nice. go. I love it. Yeah. And to uh, note cards. So yeah, I'm trying to extend the branding. <laughs> That's great. Well, put put out a t-shirt and I'll buy one for sure. Um, there you we'll go. Wrap okay. On the live stream. Well, I'll, this I'll is put that on my mind map, which is my, my, <laughs> my plan. That's awesome. Okay, great. Speaking of planning, you know, tell us about how you got from the library into planning into intelligence and strategy and all that fun stuff. Tell us about your Rockwell career okay. and uh, and unpack that a little bit for us. And then I'll uh, just once again, invite our uh, participants on the bridge. We need three interlocutors for the second half. So get your questions ready and, uh, you know, nominate yourself to join us and we'll turn uh, Judy over to you in the second half. Right. Well, I actually started out in, in corporate libraries. So I got my degree in French from the University of Iowa, which was no education degree. So what was I going to do? So I went to, um, we moved to Lafayette, Indiana. So I started working at the Purdue University Library and got to use my French degree a little bit and learn a little Russian on the way and everything and had a good time there for six years. And one of the librarians I worked with was really encouraging me to go a step further. So when we lived in Indianapolis for a year, I drove back and forth for a year to Bloomington, Indiana, to Indiana University to get my master's in library science. So that when we moved eventually to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I got the job at Rockwell Collins, then I had that degree um, to carry forward their, their first ever degreed librarian in the corporation. Wow. So that it was really fun. It was fun and fascinating. And you know, we went when I started there in 82, it was the card catalog yet. We went from a card catalog to the collections on CD-ROM to you know, a completely online um, catalog with all 18 Rockwell libraries at that time across the country. So even in a short period of time, you know, less than one generation, you see tremendous change. Um, but in the middle of that kind of uh, my friend Nancy Korber, you may have known Nancy Korber. Nancy sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, she was at Allen Bradley, and so part of Rockwell, and she told me about Skip. I'd not heard about Skip, and I attended the first meeting and got very intrigued. So um, another colleague from Rockwell and I came back to Rockwell after our first meeting at Skip and said, this looks really fascinating. It looks like something very beneficial to the company. I think we should be doing this here. And so we grew that capability um, at Rockwell over the next maybe 15 years. So half of my career at Rockwell was in the corporate library and half in competitive intelligence in the strategy group. Wow. Fun, fun job. I loved my career at Rockwell. I got to travel a lot and um, you know, participate in national groups and meet lots of fantastic people. And I think probably the highlight of my career was a year or so before I retired when I was on the team that studied at that time our biggest acquisition ever. So that was really 
fantastic to be a part of that team and use all the skills from librarianship and skip competitive intelligence skills together to support that team. Super exciting. Well, I remember, I don't know what year it was, so I won't date either of us, but it was a while back. Uh, we were both on the skip board, uh, I think at the time uh, together. And I remember you sharing the story about how you're planning ahead for your retirement and you're gonna go into the tea business. And I was super interested in that. Like, yeah, the whole corporate CI thing is really interesting, don't get me wrong. But boy, finding what your passion is and, and how you turn that passion into a business uh, is it was just something that intrigued me. And what stuck with me was your consistency. Here we are, Lord knows how many years later, and you're doing it, sister. This is really, really fun to see. Well, and you mentioned the word passion. That's absolutely what it is. I keep telling people I meet, nobody should be allowed to have this much fun doing what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, it is so much fun. And I just, I've always been a, a learner, you know, from kindergarten on. So I feel like every day I'm still learning something new about tea. It's like, it's very similar to wine. You know, it's an agricultural product. It's like terroir. Where is it grown in the world? That influences things. There are 48 teas on my chart, but those are just the 48 major kinds. There's, you know, thousands of other um, cultivars, they call them. And um, don't, I, I have to stop at some point because I just get real nerdy about it at some point, you know, and go down in the, in the weeds because I just love it so much. So when I'm teaching tea classes, I, I'm getting, I'll show you, I get, have all these little white dishes and I have people get their noses right down in their tea and breathe on it so you can smell it. So this one I'm having this morning is lovely, just lovely. So, what is that you're drinking? What's that called? Um, it's called Da Hong Pao, a big red robe, the Chinese oolong. And it's amazing all the way from the yellows and the green teas to the black teas and the oolongs, the different flavors, the different aromas. In fact, on the back of my tea chart, I have this aroma wheel. So when I'm teaching the classes online, you know, I have people smell the dry tea first when they open it up, then we infuse it, then smell the infused leaves, then smell and taste the tea liquor, it's called itself, and then try to guess on that flavor feel or try to make an estimate, you know, is it woody? Is it spicy? Is it sweet? So it's, it's really a lot of fun. And, and the, most, um, the most fun I have is when somebody becomes another tea drinker uh, I met a woman a year ago, one of my tea classes, Dorothy, who's attended a couple classes, and then I had an email from her about a week ago. She said, okay, you've turned me into a tea monster. <laughs> she went on vacation, and she went to a tea room, and she bought lots of tea, and she bought a teapot. <laughs> so that's, that's what my goal is. You know, my mission is, to first of all, to connect people to tea, to really good quality tea, and then to connect people to each other over the tea table or tea talk. Maybe you'll create some tea monsters amongst our audience participants oh, I today, hope so. Judy. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I have a question for you. You know, when you think about this passion area, you know, post post corporate retirement, right? Mm -hmm. Are there one or two or two or three or more skills that you honed in your time as a corporate librarian and strategist and competitive intel expert that you would say helped you make that transition more efficiently into the world of being an entrepreneur and a, an author and different things. Anything there that you might share with our audience today that maybe 
if you have people on the thread today that maybe have similar ambitions, whether it be, you know, a side hustle during their regular career or for someday down the road when they reach that same phase that you re reached seven or so years ago, what, what are some of those, I guess, uh, core skills that you think might translate well between your old field and your new passion area? I think at least two or three, the first couple I can think of would be the research capabilities, which certainly I got from my librarianship background, um, researching markets and market research and learning, you know, for example, the, the tea industry, when I started really becoming interested in the early 90s in the United States was about $3 billion. Now it's 13 billion. So, you know, tracking a market, watching a market, researching the market, where's it going? Um, young men are now becoming really great tea drinkers. So knowing that that's your market perhaps. So just the, the research skills and the competitive intelligence skills, I think that I learned on the job at Rockwell Collins um, and, and the marketing skills too. I never had a course in marketing, but learning through all the people I work with at Rockwell Collins who were in the marketing area about how to segment your market, how to approach your market, distribution, the products, that kind of thing. So a lot of good skills learned in the corporate arena. The thing that I think I couldn't learn there would just be the passion for that, this industry, you know, the tea industry, the product itself, the drinking of it, the drinking of it every single day, all day long, so that you start to learn about it. And that's probably, I think I would think inherent maybe in a lot of entrepreneurs is that desire to learn, you know, just to learn and to keep learning and to get really deep into something. Right. That's really cool. Um, we already have a couple of questions coming in uh, in the chat if you're watching that as I am. <clears throat> and uh, Jonathan's at, I'm going to just put Jonathan's questions on the spot here. What's your favorite type of tea? Or does that depend on the day? Depend on the way you <laughs> That's exactly, you know, I get asked that question so often. And it's, I don't know if other people may get asked, what's your favorite, who's your favorite child or something like that? <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, it does. It depends on the day. And it sounds a little silly perhaps, but every night before I go to bed, I start to think, oh, yay, I get to get up tomorrow morning and I get to do my meditation again, which I do every single morning, and I get to have tea again. So then I look at my chart and say, well, which one of my teas do I want to have tomorrow? What am I feeling like? You know, Something green or white, light. I feel like I really need a little push to want a black tea. So yeah, it kind of depends on my mood, the day, what I need to do that day. Um, but it's just, just so much fun to go pick something. And I actually kind of do that at night thinking, oh, yay, <laughs> tomorrow morning, I yeah. get to have this tea. Do you ever do you ever watch the weather pattern and take that into account? Like what's weather going to be like and how might a tea lift me up in a gloomy day versus a sunny day, that type of thing? You know, speaking about learning, there's um, a publication I subscribe to, the Global Tea Hut. It's this guy in Taiwan. He is really, really deep into the weeds about tea and the fire it's made on and where it's made on the time of day and the seasons and everything. And I'm just very, just beginning to learn from him, but yes. Yeah. If it's a rainy day, I'll probably want something a little um, more robust, like a black tea or a pu'er. Eric, what other questions do you have for Judy before? Well, we you know, I'll just share. Questions. First of all, thank you, audience. We've got our three interlocutors picked. Suki, Jonathan, and Teresa will be uh, your interlocutors in the second half Unspeakable. Tom Tao uh, mentioned that Big Red Robe is one of the most expensive teas in China. And Tom and I have actually spent 
a day in a tea house in Xi'an uh, not too many years ago drinking tea like I didn't think I could hold that much tea. <laughs> Maybe I didn't hold it very long, but I, I remember fondly, Tom, that uh, that day we spent in Xi'an Tea House. But uh, comments, Judy, that was Tom's remark. Yes. Yeah, so did you get tea drunk? <laughs> I was pretty amped, I'll say, by the time I got rolled out of there. Yeah. That's actually a term, but it doesn't really mean in the, in the alcohol sense, but it means just euphoria, just a great euphoria yeah. because you've had a lot of tea. Well, it was a very slow afternoon, as I recall, and the owner of the tea shop came out and just hung out with us and like spent as much time as we cared to spend there with her. And it was just a lovely, lovely, intimate encounter. You know, I think that's what kind of the, as a novice tea drinker, by the way, I've drank more coffee in a day than you've had in your whole life, G. Uh, and, but I will say the intimacy that I think tea has as one of its social expectations you know you think of the british empire and kind of three o'clock or three ten or so rolls around and you've got that cup of tea to sort of pick you up for the remains of the day uh, that the social and kind of cultural side of tea is just really really fascinating to me it is and so it can be very relaxing it can be energizing but you're right the part of having it with friends or family or taking tea to someone who's having a bad time for whatever reason health reasons or something like that it's um it's kind of a, a ministry in a way too, you know, uh, at least I think of it that way, encouraging people to come together and join together over tea and then share things. Wow, that's lovely. But you're, I, I'm envious of your trip. Um, I would like to go to India. I have a daughter-in-law who's from India and I would love to go with her to some of the um, Indian tea estates that I've learned about Unfortunately for me, her family has a coffee plantation. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, <laughs> wrong side of the tracks, as they say. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she indulges me. They live in, uh, my son and daughter-in-law, grandson live in New York City, and uh, she indulges me. When I go to New York City, she always finds a brand new place for us to go for tea. Something really fun. Oh, and uh, the last time was two years ago, right before COVID hit. I was in New York City, and she arranged a private tea tasting at an oolong tea store. Before the tea store opened, the young owner treated us to an hour and a half private tea tasting of five oolongs. That was something I'll never forget. That was really wonderful. Wow, how cool. Well, I will share, Marilyn asked the question, please share your opinions on organic versus not and loose versus bag. And you know, the Philistine in me says it doesn't always come in a bag, but you know, uh, there, I've broken the ice on that one. Let me address the second question first, the loose versus the bag. That's one of the reasons that I'm doing this tea education is to try to bring people from tea bags to loose leaf tea, you know, tea that looks like this. When it's infused, will be even longer. The leaves might be this long and this wide. Um, the tea bags have a different grade of tea in it. It's called dust or fannings. And that's what's kind of left after they make this good tea. So they, so they can put it in the tea bag. So it's little tiny particles, which means it infuses very rapidly and can get bitter and astringent very quickly. So people, once people start drinking what I call good tea, premium tea, specialty teas, um, they'll start to notice a difference very quickly, I think. And now I've forgotten the first question. <laughs> uh, organic versus not organic, oh, I think. Okay. 
Yeah, that's a, a big issue in the industry. Of course, many of the tea sellers that I buy from are doing organic things. Um, it's a little more expensive, makes the tea a little more expensive because they have lots of steps to go through to get that organic certification. Um, but a lot of the tea companies that I've been buying from are also very concerned about labor issues, sustainability, the organic. It's really becoming a whole different business model for them. Um, and in my mind, it's worth paying more for their tea because that's matching my values too. So I'm willing to pay a little more for my tea. A lot of times the teas I buy might be 25, 35, 55, 60 cents per cup. Um, the one I'm drinking this morning is $2.30 a cup. Wow. It's worth it. It's worth it because you can infuse it more than one time. So that brings it to 115 a cup, you know, third time. Right. <laughs> so, um, sometimes you get what you pay for um, and it's worth paying for something really, really good. And I always tell people when I'm teaching tea classes, so you paid a dollar for that cup of tea. How much did you pay for the last cup of coffee you bought at Starbucks? Yeah, eight bucks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Judy, you mentioned this this marketplace for, and I think you meant uh, worldwide, but it might have been isolated to North America or even the U.S. being a, a move from three billion in market uh, size to 13. Do I have that's, that correct? That's the U.S. market. That's right. just the U.S. market. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's be going to become, if it hasn't already, a highly competitive environment for market share. Mm -hmm. um, do you foresee a day where uh, you might be approached, maybe have been already, to be a uh, essentially a tea thought leader for a specific provider of tea out there? Does that type of thing happen in your space? And I guess I'm just curious if if that is something that interests you at all, or if maintaining your independence so that you can truly be across the board independent about uh, tea recommendations if that's more important to you. It is more important to me to maintain that independence um, as a tea educator. Um, I, my, one of my goals is to be um, a speaker at one of the national conferences, definitely. That would be a goal maybe even for next year. But I wanna be able to talk about all the teas that I find across the world. There are like 20 vendors I go to on a regular basis. I'm always learning about more. And I would hate to be restricted to just saying these are the best teas from one vendor. I think that would be very restrictive. Right. Yeah, That's that was the answer I assumed I would get. But yeah. I just wanted to put that out there because yeah. it, yeah. it kind of struck me that this market is becoming so large and obviously exponentially larger than that if you count XUS, right? Yeah. Um, and I would imagine if you haven't already, you're going to get approached more and more as your reputation in this industry only continues to grow. Pretty cool. Uh, Eric, any other questions before we kind of get ready to release our inter interlocutors to uh, Judy here in a few minutes? I think you might be muted, big brother. There you go. Of course. You know, it's my first online meeting of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> And I noticed you guys never miss a chance to dig each other, do you? Oh, <laughs> well, no, no, no. Who else would if it weren't for, weren't for us? So for those of you streaming on social, scan that QR code and you can register to join the second half of the hour called Unspeakable. Uh, if you join Unspeakable, you'll learn a POE app and you'll be able to uh, potentially win a copy of Judy's book uh, about talking tea. I'm going to show you another... Um, screen here. This will take you to this page. 
And uh, if you type corevc, core.vc slash fog, that will take you to the specific event page that we have uh, going on here with Judy, or it should, it's supposed to take you here, uh, where you can register and then join us for that second half. But um, I think we're gonna say goodbye to all the folks on social in about one minute. I'm gonna be upgrading Suki Fuller to join us here. Suki mentioned that it's been some years since uh, she hung out with you. Yes. Jesus, I'm gonna be upgrading you here right now.